0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 35, Death is Patient. The wall around the Jewish quarter seemed to be growing daily as the workers piled red brick upon red brick. Zavia and Isaac knew it was only a matter of time before the Nazis formally declared that all Jews must remain inside and that Gentiles were to no longer have contact with those inside the walled city. So, not wasting any time, the Jewish underground used the facade of their soup kitchens to meet, further organize, and plan future actions. Oh, the soup kitchen was real enough, as was the Zionist school, that would eventually award high school diplomas, law and medical degrees, and engineering certificates. The Christian poles outside the wall were doing the same thing, As both groups broke Nazi regulations, that Poles could only be educated up to the sixth grade, while the Jews were forbidden any formal learning. On a side note, for us, the audience, with hindsight, we all know this was going to happen. Indeed, much more was in store for these people. But imagine living at this time, for the victorious army and Europe was no stranger to wars to winning and losing, to declare that education was now illegal for the conquered. Clearly, this was new territory for the vanquished. Equally clearly, Hitler certainly did intend his Third Reich to last 1,000 years. And one way of manifesting his dream was to ensure the ignorance of all Europeans. Except the master race. So, classes began when they had always begun. On September 1st. Of course, in 1940, the classes were much smaller, certainly more dangerous, and being conducted in the basements of several factories. A month later, one classroom in particular was being used by Zuckerman to coordinate with yet another group that desired to join his cause. The Marxist young guard may have had differing views of life and the future of Jewry, but they all agreed it was time to come together. During their formal union on October 12th of that year, the discussion was getting heated, though all concerned remembered to keep their voices down. Some argued that the Germans simply wanted to punish and humiliate Jews by making them work for the German war effort. Others claimed that the Nazis had a more sinister plan for all of them. But the debate ended when a lookout burst into the room, exclaiming that she had heard over the Barker's the loudspeakers attached to lampposts throughout the city, that by the end of the month, every single Jew in Warsaw was to be inside the walled city. It was only then that Zavia, who, as her wont, was quietly sitting in the corner, stood and walked to the center of the room, where she announced, her voice quiet but steady, they intend to starve us. There was no counter-argument. As the deadline came closer, over 100,000 Gentiles and another 130,000 Jews received eviction notices. Those Jews who had assimilated over the years, living outside of the quarter, perhaps owning either a successful business or one of the finer homes or apartments, again outside of the quarter, now had to leave it all behind and find a place to stay within the walls. Those Gentiles who had lived inside the quarter now found themselves forced to leave by the Nazi edict. Of course, they were allowed to take with them anything they wanted or everything they had. Overnight, Warsaw was turned into a circus by all the packing or abandoning of one's possessions, not to mention every conveyance possible being used, rented, or stolen to move one's things to a new location. Indeed, the resulting fracas was such that the deadline for all concerned was moved to the middle of November. When C. M. Rothhauser took one look at his family's new living quarters, a single room to be shared by the five members of the family on St. George's Street, he, for one, did not want to follow the ultimatum. His mother felt the same way. And honestly, they both, with their fair features, his mother's perfect Polish, probably could have gotten away with it for a while. But the eviction notices sent out weeks ago had their names clearly printed on them. The Nazis seemed to know who was who and where they lived. In the end, the decision was for Zima's father, Zvi, to make. And, being the type of man who always followed the rules, moved his reluctant family into their new abode. In time, half a million Jews would be crammed together within the ghetto's 730 acres. Before the move, Simha, being forced into manhood a bit early, argued with his father that surely the Germans would still allow the Jews to travel outside the walls to conduct daily business as long as they were back by the 9 p.m. curfew. Even occupations needed revenue. But the older man, though he did not explain himself, knew the mindset of the Nazi intentions. Besides, the decision was his to make. And right Zvi turned out to be. After the altered deadline passed, German officials arrested some 11,000 Jews who had not moved into the quarter. Some were roughly taken and forced behind the walls. Others never got the chance, but simply disappeared. And widening the net, the Germans had recently taken the opportunity of the isolation decree to declare an amendment to the Nuremberg Laws. From now on, anyone with mixed parentage, even if they had been regarded as Christian before, was now considered a Jew. They, too, now had to move into the quarter. But the nightmare was just beginning. The day after the extended deadline for all Jews to relocate to the quarter, the 22 gates of the walled city were locked and guarded by German gendarmes as well as members of the Polish Blue Police. Only those on approved official business were now allowed to leave. Disbelief and panic spread throughout the ghetto as neighbors and family members were awoken and told the news. As Zavia and Zuckerman lived at the top of the same building, they found out at the same time and decided to call a meeting. Ironically, gatherings had been much easier to conduct in recent weeks, What with the Poles removed, as some of them had been German spies, they all were replaced by reliable or probable Jews. The first order of business was to find a way not to be cut off from the rest of German-controlled Poland, and to still be able to bring in food. The reason information came before sustenance was that German decrees or undertakings tended to happen in Lodz or Litzmannstadt, as it had been renamed to the West first and only then to the capital. That city had been directly annexed by the German government in Berlin and was well on its way to being completely Germanized. So whatever happened there would probably come their way soon enough and therefore had to be known. Sevilla decided, in her role as leader of the left-leaning Zionist group, that established couriers were needed to travel between the occupied cities. She also decided that these couriers were to be women. They would be less suspected of carrying out dangerous acts of spying, but there were few who could fit the bill. Zvia needed women with fair features, who spoke perfect Polish, and could easily blend within Gentile communities. Zuckerman, of course, desired to keep traveling within German-controlled Poland as he had been doing before the gates closed on November 16th, but Zewia overruled him. He may have had the looks of a poster boy for Hitler's Germany, but his Polish was miserable with a heavy Yiddish accent. In fact, the only two women Zivia could find, for now, were the Plotnitka sisters, Frunka and Hasia. Their Polish was passable. It certainly needed work. However, in the looks department, they both could have easily walked down Wilhelmstrasse itself and not turn an eye, except in regards of admiration. So, while the sisters practiced their Polish, Zavia worked on forging travel documents. The first few days after the wall was sealed, the doors locked and guarded, the Polish quarter and the city around it became a microcosm of humanity, in that it mirrored many things that makes humans beautiful. And hateful. After word spread that the 22 gates of the Jewish quarter had been barred, the price of food skyrocketed, simple supply and demand, but many in the hundreds if not thousands of Gentiles outside of the walls soon rushed to shops, bought basic foodstuff, and threw them over the walls. Such was their reaction to Nazi cruelty sometimes randomly, sometimes yelling out a particular family name and waiting for a response before the bread or what have you was tossed over. But this generosity lasted only to the moment, the very moment, a Polish citizen was shot by a German guard for pushing a bag of flour over the wall. It was only then, and this seems to be a universal truth, that in times of crisis, the needy are helped by some, or taken advantage of by others. Loaves of bread may not have been thrown over the wall in daylight anymore, but a massive smuggling operation between groups and individuals sprang into life almost immediately. In time, just over 80% of the food consumed by those of the Warsaw Ghetto came from the outside, brought in against German law. Soon, agreements of Food for valuables were reached by whispers carried over a section of the wall at night. But it was the Jewish young people, the teenagers, and sometimes even younger, that turned out to be the immediate heroes. And Sima Rothhauser was one of them. Finally, finding something he could do to thwart the Germans, he searched around until he found a way to leave the quarter. Turns out it wasn't that difficult for someone of small size. Some sections of the wall went through buildings, and with some exploring, Sima and others found that windows had been pathetically bricked up, or perhaps a firewall did not quite make it to the ceiling in certain sections. Soon young people, and to them it was partly a game, were sneaking outside with collected money, and bringing back items that meant, literally, life for another day. Of course, the microcosm existed here, too. Soon older boys or adults found these very gaps, and although they could not fit through them themselves, they camped out there and charged five zlatas or so for passage through. Greed, like life, always finds a way. At first, these children were able to obtain items from their shopping lists without going more than a few blocks from the wall. Such were others eager to sell. But then, German officials, focusing in on one of the reasons for taking Poland, all that rich farmland, simply started confiscating crops, livestock, and, when needed, machinery. The children came home with stories of having to go further and further away. This caused their parents to panic. Still, their children were the only ones who could leave. But then, the farmers got better at hiding their crops and then smuggling food into the cities, where prices guaranteed a risky but profitable return. Of course, the food situation began to settle down soon enough. After all, guards, the blue police, as well as German patrols, were willing to turn their backs for the right price as sacks of flour or other items were brought in. In more than one instance, the police and guards found something interesting to stare at in one area as cows and other livestock were walked over the wall using planks in another section. Indeed, Nazi ideology was one thing, but money is money. Seymour, enjoying his newfound importance, as well as finally finding a way to strike out against the Germans, took his enterprise to a whole new level by deciding to cut out the middleman. The 16-year-old took to traveling far from the capital, where he was able to save impressive amounts of his family's scarce currency. However, he still had to keep an eye out for robbers, as well as recruiters, who found it harder and harder to obtain workers to be sent to Germany. Because by now, the Nuremberg Laws notwithstanding, those tasks with gathering workers by hook or by crook were turning a blind eye from not allowing Jews to enter the Reich. They only knew that their numbers were not matching the needed columns printed out by the munition factories. And even though it was the Polish Christians that were disappearing, around 800,000 by the end of 1940 alone, the Jewish underground decided to strike back. Because once the Christians were depleted, they reasoned. They were next, regardless of the law. Soon, various German labor offices were gouged by fire, the hope being the vital records within were destroyed. Sometimes the plan worked, sometimes not, but the German officials in the area knew they had to stop the breaking of their laws. After all, it was the perceived invulnerability of the Third Reich that was, for a time, its greatest weapon. As German actions and Jewish reactions continued, and vice versa, the Waldorf Jewish Quarter was more and more, literally, becoming its own world. For some Jews, the whole world. The Germans, to a large extent, stayed out of the Jewish area throughout the end of 1940 and the beginning of 1941. Contact was down to a minimum, which meant the Jews had to police themselves. But what's more, businesses began to grow throughout the quarter. Christian businessmen would smuggle in raw materials, and soon after, finished goods were smuggled out. The soup kitchens, real and those that served as fronts, continued on as well. Life, as alien as it was now, was settling down into a semi-state of normality. That is, into two states of normality. Because the Zionists kept to themselves as did the Bundists. Still, life had improved for both groups over the last few months. Life was miserable, but endurable. And most importantly, the residents of the Jewish quarter, as crammed in as they were, were being left alone. The height of this surrealism came to a point when the quarter's residents started opening up their movie theaters again, put on plays, and hobbled together orchestras that allowed those within to escape back to a previous life, if only for a few hours. However, this relative peaceful term came to an end with the spring of 1941, and Isaac Zuckerman's Zionist clubhouse would be the first to feel this new ill wind blowing. The massive raid, when it came, commenced in mid-April, just after curfew. Zuckerman and those with him had grown accustomed to the absence of the Germans, and emboldened by their ability to intimidate the blue police. But suddenly, men in uniform entered through the normally boarded-up gate at Valiant Street and encircled the entire building that held the clubhouse. But this was not the blue police, an entity the underground knew well. Instead, it was the heretofore quiet and non-threatening order service, made up of Jewish lawyers and those of the middle and upper classes. Everyone had assumed, rightly, that these people had joined the service more to protect themselves than to harm others. That was no longer true. The Germans expected results and applied the appropriate pressure. Fortunately for Zuckerman and Zavia, they were not at the clubhouse at the time of the raid. They were in another apartment building, in a room, together. At some point in their working together, the two rebels had fallen for each other. Not an uncommon occurrence when working in close proximity to someone, especially in a dangerous situation. But when Zuckerman received word he had his own guards posted so others would not find out about the two, he rushed to the building. As he came abreast of those being taken away, he noticed the absence of any Germans. Also, no one was asking the captives any questions. Turns out, this was not an attempt to break the Zionist organization, but something more sinister. It was simply the absconding of a much-needed labor force. Even though Jews were not allowed within the Third Reich proper, even as slave laborers, the general government needed workers to replace the evacuated Poles, and the Jewish Council's Labor Department was tasked with acquiring such people. Feeling pressure from the Nazis, this entity was becoming as bad as the Germans in randomly collecting poles to work back in Germany, and now, it seemed, Jews for local work. In fact, from the spring and into the summer of 1941, German officials put intense pressure on the Labor Department, which kept on grabbing men off the streets and now from the ghetto itself. This information was sent along to British intelligence that clearly the Nazis were building up for a major offensive. Though in what direction, and against who, they could not discern. Up until now, the Labor Department had left the Zionist alone. Such was Zuckerman's connection to that body. But clearly, those days were over. Isaac, unaware of these changes, went to complain in person about his colleagues. Barely into his argument, the young, strongly built leader was apprehended and placed with those captured the night before. He tried to fight his way out of the office, using his height and strength, but soon three policemen were on him, trying to hold him down. But it wasn't working. Thinking of Zavia and his responsibilities, Isaac kept moving, ducking, and dodging, not allowing the three men to get a decent grip on him. But his struggles came to an end when a German soldier walked up and placed a pistol to Zuckerman's head. The young Zionist ceased his struggle. Isaac and the men holding him panted from their exertions. Only the German soldier was calm and unaffected. Within days, Isaac and those with him were relocated to the Campinos labor camp, located about 20 miles northwest of Warsaw. But that is where the similarities ended between himself and the rest. Isaac now labeled a troublemaker, was placed at the bottom of a mud pit, one of his eyes swollen shut, and blood covered his face. His welcome committee had beaten him during his first night. Then the beatings were prefaced with questions. It seemed that inquiries, formal and of the other kind, were being asked of him, his whereabouts, and his condition. Clearly, he was not a common Jew. The Ukrainian guards wanted answers, and were willing to beat Isaac every day until they got those answers. But he wouldn't talk. He knew Zvia was unwisely exposing their underground by trying to find him. The last thing he was going to do was make it easier for anyone, Russian, Polish, or German, to discover his, and so many others, secret lives. Unwilling to cooperate after days of intense beatings, the camp leader decided to make an example of this stubborn Jew. He was to be executed, and his body hung up for three days for all the other prisoners to see. But to Zuckerman's mind, this example was certainly not needed. What little he could see of camp life convinced him that the emaciated prisoners were in no condition to resist. They barely had the strength to stand at attention during roll call each morning. Of course, the decision of when he was to die was not his to make. Yet no decision seemed to be forthcoming. He waited and waited for the guards to take him away. The delay was worse than the beatings. Finally, three guards came, picked him up as best they could, and carried him away. But instead of standing him up against a wall, he was taken to another cell that was not full of mud and water. Isaac found himself placed with others who gave him watery soup, and a few pieces of bread, head swirling, life, for right now, made no sense to Isaac. He had made his peace with death, sorted out his thoughts for a man leaving this world, but now it seemed he might be staying for a little while longer. Finally, someone came to see the slowly healing Zuckerman. It was the Volksdeutsche camp manager himself. This normally cruel man politely told Isaac that he was not going to be shot, but instead would serve as an office clerk. This made even less sense to the sick, feverish, and scared young man. Clearly, it was a trick to get him to lower his guard, regain some of his strength, so they could start the questions and beatings over again. But as Zuckerman's body healed and his thinking cleared, the young man guessed that perhaps the guards were unwilling to kill a man with connections. The captors, of course, had no idea how important Suckerman was, but they weren't willing to take the chance. After all, a number of German Poles, Germans that had lived in Poland before the war, had recently been found dead, apparently by suicide, with notes declaring the guilt they felt over the fate of their adopted country. These deaths may have been assisted by others, or perhaps not, but the Germans were certainly confused enough not to carry out their threat to kill 100 Poles for every German killed. Of course, there was no way for Zuckerman to confirm his suspicions, but he decided to gamble on his premise. He had nothing to lose. Within days of working in the office, Isaac made it known to other prisoners that he would be willing to pay for his release. Surely some of the prisoners were in the pay of the guards and would send the information on. But what surprised the young Zionist leader was not only how quickly word must have gotten back to the camp leader, because he found himself before the man, who happily agreed to the idea of getting money to be rid of the prisoner, but also how willing the leader seemed to be to accept additional money to release five other prisoners that had been captured the night before Isaac had. So, After a very short conversation between the two men, Isaac was on the phone to Zavia arranging the cash for their freedom. Going home with them were some 245 other men from the ghetto who were now too sick to be productive to the camp. But proving either their cruelty or lack of motorized transportation, something else the British government would be interested in knowing, the 250-odd men had to walk the four-mile distance to the nearest train station. But such was their condition that many of the men died in trying to cover the distance on foot. Many others would soon die after reaching the ghetto. Another 53, taken the night of the raid, had already died. As Zuckerman regained his strength back within the ghetto's walls, he told Zavia that, as far as he could tell, the camp's sole purpose was to slowly kill Jews. There was no mining, no road building, or even the harvesting of crops for the German masters. Literally, the camp made no sense to the young man. But it did have a purpose, a very specific purpose. The tons of dirt these slave prisoners were forced to move about was only a small part of a massive defensive works along the entire border with the Soviet Union. But Isaac, because of his lack of military training, and his time inside the camp was either in a cell or in the office, did not recognize this for what it was. Another question the young Zionist could have asked himself was why the Nazis were using Ukrainian poles to run camps or being used in other positions of responsibilities. The answer would have shocked the Jews of the ghetto and been extremely useful to British intelligence. As the months of early 1940 went by, The Germans were preparing for their next step of European dominance. The Ukrainians were needed to man many positions because the Germans were husbanding their own folk. That the Ukrainians had been under the sway of the more successful Poles in general, and of Jews in particular, their desire for revenge could be counted on to continue the Nazis' work of ridding Europe of the Jewish race while their new masters prepared to move east. Greetings everyone from Central Virginia. So, um, sorry for getting this out a day late. I tried to put it out on the last day of the month. Um, Just a lot going on here. I'm sure a a lot of you um, are the same way. Um, But my excuse is my son... Matthew, my oldest, my only boy, has decided to join the Marines. Um, So I took him a week ago to the bus station to get on the bus to go to Paris Paris Island. And he's not a Marine yet; he is a recruit in recruit training. I've been very told told to be very clear on that. And um, so, just a lot going on here, and and um, just being a worrywart. So anyway, um, this week's totally random coffee mug winner is. Brett B from O'Fallon, Missouri. So, Brett, when you get a chance, give me a, send me an email to wwii podcast at gmail dot com, and I will get your information to send that out to you. So, congratulations, and I will see you all as soon as I can with the next episode. As soon as we finish with the uh, ghetto uprising, there's some stuff I want to cover in China before. Uh, the European war broke out. So uh, China's allies are going to go through a lot. So I've got some interesting resources on that. So we'll just take a look and I'll try to um, weave a good story from that. So again, thank you all very much for being members, for supporting the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I'll see you as soon as I can with the next one. Take care, everyone.